drops the throw, sets his feet down the left side. He's going for LaVisca Chanel, who cuts inside the defender, and he comes up with a football. Oh, are you kidding me? That is a touchdown. Touchdown, Colorado, by the wide receiver, LaVisca Chanel, and what a way to set the record for Steven Montez. Here comes the blitz. Hit, and it's picked off on a throw over the middle. Caught by Nate Lamon. He runs it up the near side, and he stumbles across the 30-yard line. Tripped up by the quarterback, Eason, and it's a turnover. Montez under center. They give it off on the end around the LaVisca Chanel, who runs over the top of an offender and discards the defensive player and chucks him aside and works his way down to the 30. That right there came down to a will and a want to. And calls to the ball, takes it chest high. He scans, he looks, here comes a blitz. He is grabbed by Perry, and he's sacked. How about that play by the freshman? Montez is snap, play action, sets to throw. He's going for the home run. Tony Brown is in the end zone, and he makes the crab. End zone, touchdown, touchdown, Colorado. Oh, what a throw. Oh, what a catch by Tony Brown. Name bot. He's a right tackle, moved to left tackle. He starts things up front for the bus. Second and four, Lou Foud and Nelson Spruce. First down, Buffaloes. Welcome into a special Buff Stampede radio. I am Adam Munster Tiger, the publisher of BuffStampede.com. Today I have a special guest. I'm joined by Forever Buff, Stefan Nembot. Obviously, Stefan was at CU from 2011 to 2015, and he began his professional career. Stefan, we were talking a little bit about uh, your life before you. You uh, jumped on here. You're, you're in the, the, the process of a move. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm in the process of a move. You know, things uh, have changed. No longer professional, obviously. But, yeah, I'm in the process of a move, trying to ship a little bit gears to Dallas, Texas. So we'll see what life has in store for me. All right. Well, I know you started a podcast. That's one of the reasons I wanted to get you on here, but also wanted to maybe take a, a trip down memory lane with you. Uh, uh-huh. but, but before we, we do that, uh, kind of talk to me about your decision to start a podcast and kind of your, <clears throat> your motivation behind that. Oh, yeah. So uh, I started a podcast like a couple of weeks ago, which is pretty, it's doing pretty well right now. You know, I'm trying to market it myself, but the process of starting it was the fact that I was always talking. And when I got back from Canada and I realized uh, with my injury, I couldn't go back, you know, since my injury that I did it from the NFL and everything. So I always wanted to be like a radio host and I applied to many places. And obviously with my accent, I don't know if that has anything to do with it, but I thought like, okay, maybe it's time for me to just go ahead and launch my own thing and just talk about something that I'm passionate about, something that I like, something that is cultural things. I like to discover culture. So I just went ahead and created cultural awareness, you know? That's awesome. How, how can folks listen to your podcast? Oh, they can load into a Spreaker or iTunes or Spotify. So it's pretty much in every mainstream media. Okay. Uh, there. And it's uh, the Cultural Awareness Podcast. Is that correct? Yeah, Cultural Awareness Podcast. Yes, sir. Obviously, you have a unique perspective with that being from West Central Africa, being in the United States. You said even quick briefly there in Canada. Uh, just, you know, how, how much does that allow you to have an insight into culture that maybe most folks don't? Is that why you're kind of passionate about it? 
Yeah, I'm very passionate about it. Even when I wanted as a kid to come to the U.S., I didn't, yes, I wanted to be like a multimillionaire. I still do, don't get me wrong. But the thing that fascinated me the most was culture. You know, I like seeing certain trend of fashion, for example, that one culture has that the other one doesn't. You know, I went to Canada, learned a little bit over there. You know, I was in Ottawa. I went to Toronto and all the other city. Then I have been to Istanbul just to discover culture. I've been to Amsterdam, you know, obviously being from Western Africa, you know, so I bring a unique perspective in the fact that the way we, for example, see things in one culture might be perceived in another culture as either good or disrespectful, you know what I mean? So, and obviously... You listen to the podcast, I always say my job is I'm not there to judge any culture because there's no right or wrong culture. There's simply culture. You know what I mean? It's just the way people have been practicing things for years. So I just try to bring that perspective and kind of show a little bit what the differences are. And if people are travelers, it would be good for them, right? Because it, wouldn't it be good, for example, to go to Saudi Arabia and know like, hey, you are not supposed to shake a woman's hands? Like, that is something because you don't want to get there when you do it, people find it offensive. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's just so those type of things. So. One example you you put out there is that when you came to the United States, you weren't used to looking authority figures in the eye. In yeah. Back home, that's disrespectful. How big of an adjustment was that? It was very big. I remember Coach McIntyre used to get really pissed about it, right? Because he was always like, look at me in the eye when I'm talking to you. And I was always either looking down, you know, because what he didn't understand was that my culture is a sign of disrespect, you know? So I was used to not looking even at my parents in the eyes growing up. And even at elders, people that are older than you, like, you know, it's a sign of respect. But when I got here, the culture shifted, right? When you look at someone in the eyes, here is considered disrespectful. It's like you don't care about what they're saying. But where I come from, it's like a sign of challenge. Like, why, how dare you look at someone in the eyes when they're talking to you, you know? So that is like one aspect of differences in culture right that is why i try to bring things like that just for people to understand uh before you judge maybe somebody you might want to try to understand where they are coming from like that might have something to do with it i know a lot of cu fans are are already familiar with parts of your story um but even for those folks i I think it would be they would enjoy kind of hearing about your journey in life we already talked about the fact that you're from Western Africa, in Cameroon, in a rich tribal tradition. Your mother was actually a princess, right? In, yeah, she's she, actually, yeah, my mom is actually here with me right now. Like, oh, that's she's, awesome. Yeah, so, the, which is one of, probably one of my greatest achievements. Obviously, I play in the NFL or whatever, but like, for me, family always comes first. Like, I have, I have my second mom here. Lori Miner that always look after me with Nelson Miner, but it's also good to know that my mom finally gets to meet who I call my other mother. You know what I mean? So it's been interesting. You see like differences in personality, differences in the way uh, culture kind of shape people and things like that. So uh, she's right here right now. And uh, yes, she's a princess just because she was the daughter of a chief, right? She, she was the daughter of a chief. That's why they call her princess. And people used to, always, it always amazed me. People think princess, oh, 
money, you know. No, that's not, <laughs> there's no money in there. Just that from generation and generation, we are just descendant of one of those, right? There's no money, but it's just some type of a title you get. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so it was because she embraced Christianity that, that she moved to the, the, the city and yeah, that's where you were? To the city, yeah, because in my culture, uh there's a lot of things that happen like there's a lot of like when you live in a village and you are part of a chiefdom or kingdom if you like to call it like that they you know there are certain things you must do you know so she obviously didn't feel like doing it because we don't just believe in god in the cultural part in terms of like the chief or kingdom they are also like you know mysterious things that also happen the way they talk to the ancestor, you know, uh, how they do things. And like before we do something, would they go and consult first before, you know, they take a trip or anything like that. So my mom just believed in God and being a Christian. So obviously she removed herself. Uh, it's not like she got kicked out. It's just that she just wanted to go to church, you know. So she removed yeah. herself and went to the big city of Dwarah. What does being a descendant of the Nambot warrior mean to you now, and, and what did it mean growing up? Oh, uh, growing up, I actually didn't know about it. I just knew that uh, the way my great grandma, right? Because I didn't get a chance to meet my grandma, but I had a chance to meet my great grandma. The way she always like talked to me and called me her husband, I, I never understood it. She was like, "You are my husband. Do you even know who the first king Nambot is?" He's the one that started this whole tribe, but I, I didn't know that. You know what I mean? So I'm just a kid when she's talking to me. So it's a couple of years down the road, like, I mean, many, many years, because she, she died when I was still a little kid. But it's many years down the road when I started looking into, like, where I really come from and things like that, that I kind of understood what she meant, right? Because uh, King Nambot was one of the first king of, my, at least on my mom's side. He was one of the first king of that tribe, and he's, you know, so uh, it's a great feeling to know that you come and visit. And when people, like, I remember I see you, people used to look at me in terms of genetics, you know, so they used to be like, you have great genetics, man. How can you be 322 pounds with a six-pack? I was like, man, I just work hard for it. But the truth of the matter is, genetic has something to do with it also, right? You, just, you can work hard all you want, but sometimes you get also what I call God help, right? So it's just what it is, yeah. Was it a, a high school basketball coach from the States that was scouting out there that, that found you playing basketball and, and kind of convinced you to come out to the, to the U.S.? Yeah, yeah. He was uh, a coach from uh, UCLA, and that was due to the fact that People always say that he's my cousin, but like we just call each other cousin. But if you know Luke Richard Bayamute, he played for the Clippers at one point and, and for the Houston Texans, like the basketball team, the Houston Rocket. I'm saying Texan, the Houston Rocket. Yeah, yeah. So it's because of him. He was playing at UCLA at the time. And he was such a great defender. And UCLA was like, well, we need more players like him. Uh, they knew that by NCA rule, they couldn't pay for anything for me, but they organized a camp, right, to bring awareness or whatever. And I was one of those people in that camp. Did, you play, did you play a lot of basketball before that? 
No, I didn't play a lot. I I, I started and I, I actually started really getting good at it, right? I wasn't great at it or anything like that. I couldn't really score like that. Everybody knew that. But my defense was impeccable. So I knew that for a fact that I had that part down. So it's just that when they did, they came and they saw that I was a good defender. They say, oh, we can teach you offense. We can motivate someone to play defense because it has to come from within, but we can teach you how to score. Uh, we won't be able to like pay for anything for you like that, but we will find some school that have some type of sponsoring program and they will go ahead and figure a way on how to bring you to the U.S. And that is exactly what happened. I ended up playing for Montclair Prep in California. So that's where my journey began. Is it a no-brainer for you the, the second you realize that's an option? Are you on a plane or, or do you have to put it, some thought into that? How, how tough of a decision was that? It's kind of, it's, it was hard mostly for my mom. My dad and I wanted me out of Cameroon, right? So, But for my mom, as a woman and feelings and everything, I remember she cried. She even fainted at one point. That, you know, She tried to keep me home as much as she could. I was like, no, I'm leaving. I'm not going to school. I'm not going to do nothing. I just want to go, you know. So finally, when she was okay for me to leave, because even if my dad gave his blessing, I still had to wait for my mom to also give me her blessing for me to leave. And when both of them happened, then I was on my first plane. It didn't kick in until I was going to high school in America, right? Because the idea of leaving was in my head. Right, the idea, but I didn't really know where I'm going because I have never been to the U.S. before. It didn't really kick in until I see myself blending around with, like, you know, my American friends and going to school. And I was like, huh, this is real now. <laughs> so, you know, and I found myself not knowing how to speak English. That's when it really, really hit hard. And then you start missing home. And, man, I miss my mom, my dad, and everybody, you know. So that is when it actually hit me. Aside from the language barrier, was the U.S. different than what you kind of thought it was going to be like when you got on that plane? Uh, yeah, it definitely was different, especially that when I first got uh, here. I remember I was in Los Angeles. I was with the probably the richest uh, the richest kids that I, I would have ever met in my life because my school was a private school. The tuition there was like fifty to fifty five thousand dollars a year. So I was meeting all these rich people. I ever met the daughter of uh, Knight Rider. He was like, oh, well, he, even now, they still play Knight Rider back home. So everybody thinks the, the movie is recent. I didn't even know growing up that that movie was already old. You know what I mean? So I, when you meet different kind of people, and this is Los Angeles, I see all these palm tree on the street, the good grass and everything. So to me, I was just amazed, right? Because I was loving it every single moment of it because I, I didn't really see it like that growing up. So uh, it, that was probably a really, really good feelings, you know? Did you even know what American-style football was when you were coming over? Like foot, American football, I actually have never heard of it until I got, like we heard of rugby. Because every time I was confusing rugby with American football. Because it's probably, it's playing the same way, except like in rugby, like they pass the ball behind, you know. So I, I didn't really know the difference. To me, it was like, hey, they're hitting each other. Hey, it must be the same sport. It's until I got in high school. I remember my junior year when the coach came around and like put 
a helmet on top of my head. And I was like, man, what the hell are you doing? You know, and he was like, hey, be, uh, I just want you to try it on. So it was his way slowly to kind of bring me into the football. He's like, just try it on and see how it fits. So I try it on. And I was like, yeah, it, it looks great on you, you know. But every week he will try to put something on me, you know, until I finally decide, like, you know what, yeah, I will go ahead and uh, try this thing out. Did you like football initially or was it something that you had to kind of grow into? I actually got in football. I will never forget it. I got in football due to a, a challenge. I will never forget Coach Reggie Smith. He came, uh, he, he was a defensive coach and he wanted me to play defensive end. So he came one day after Coach George Yardini, Coach G had put the helmet on me and be like, I bet you Africans are soft. That's what I remember exactly those words. I bet you Africans are soft. I, I bet you you cannot even handle one hit from a football uh, from a football player here. And me being like stupid at the time, I was like, you know what? I will prove you that you're wrong. So let's go ahead and let's try it. So what you got? He gave me a pad to hold it. And there's this kid that was coming around the corner like a running back, full speed, you know, full, and he just hit the Man, the crap out of me. I just flew. Remember, I was very light also. I was just I had just came from Africa. So I was very skinny back then. And he hit me so hard and I was holding the power and I just flew. Well, well man, when I got up, I was like, man, this is not fair. He said, I told you Africans are soft. I'm like, no, we are not soft. How about we go helmet to helmet? They are like, but you have never tried a helmet before. I said, yeah, put one on and let's go. And they're like, you don't have any power. I said, I don't care. Let's go. Because, I, you know, my pride was like, man, did this kid just put me on my, you know, on my butt out there? So next thing I know, they try me. They put the helmet on my head. And I said, let's do it one more time. So when we did it, I re- I, he was running full speed and I was running full speed. And we met head to head. There's this sound, even till today. I play football, all the college and NFL. There's this sound I've never heard that just came out of that collision. Like, it was so freaking hard. And the kid just fell down and just started, like, puking everywhere. And I was like, man, what just happened? So they were like, you just gave him a concussion. I didn't, that's the first day I heard of the term concussion in my life. Next thing I know, three days later, I was the captain of the team playing my first game as a defensive end. When do the recruiters start taking notice of you in football? Uh, yeah, everything happened within my senior year. It's like when people like was watching me play defensive end, I didn't even know when I played my first game, I tackled like two people and make the running back for or fumble the ball. And one of my teammates, you know, take the ball and score. And I'm confused because I didn't know how you score a point in football, right? So he just pick it up and ran, and they're like, he just scored. I'm like, ha, he just crossed the line over there. He just ran, and that's it. And they're like, yeah, once you cross that line, that means you score. And, you know, I, did, I was, you know, that is probably one of the first videos that people started watching. And Coach Reggie, obviously, uh, he had a lot of connection in terms of he played college football himself at USC. So he was like, uh, oh, let me call all my ex-friends that are coaching in college just so they can check your tape out. So he just started sending them with Coach Ainde, Bonani, they start sending them, Coach Teddy, they start sending all my tape to everybody. Coach Campos, yeah, he sent it to a lot of people. And next thing I know, 
uh, one day, I will never forget it, uh, Ed or Joram show up on campus. And he was like, Stefan. That's how he talked. Stefan, uh, I'm from the University of Southern California. You know, how are you doing today, my man? You know, that's how he's talking. And I'm, I'm doing well. He said, will you be willing to come to a camp? We want to offer you a full scholarship to come to USC. And I was just shocked the way it happened, you know. And then from there, I started having every school. I had Nebraska, UCLA down the street because I'm not far from UCLA campus. And Washington State, Washington. Colorado actually came last, right? So, you know, I told you we pray a lot in my home. And I remember I had so much courage, it was becoming overwhelming. And I remember praying, God, please, the school that will call my parents back home to ask for their blessing, that is the school I will go to, even though I was committed to UCLA, but I realized I did it on my own. I didn't really ask anybody before I committed to UCLA. But So I pray on it, and I said, the, the school that will ask for my parent blessing, that is where I will go. There's only one school that did it, University of Colorado. And what was it? Coach Mike Chiasisopo, because he understood. He said, I'm from a tribe. You guys are trying to get that kid. He's confused. He never played football before. This is his first year playing football. And he got so many scholarships. But the thing is, in his head, he's confused. He will follow his parents. And when they called my dad, I will never forget, they called my dad, and my dad was so happy and everything. And then uh, when they got done talking, my dad called me. He said, there's this university saying that they are the University of Colorado. Uh, they're saying that they want my blessing for you to go to their college. He said, you know, I will never tell you what to do. But if I were you, I would go to the University of Colorado because that for them to consider us in the decision-making, that means they care. Next thing I know, I couldn't back out of my commitment to God. Now, I say that the first school that will call my parents, that's where we'll go. So I ended up just coming to Colorado and signing the paperwork. I didn't commit, no nothing. I just came, signed the paperwork. I didn't want to hear no commitment. I just signed it. And, you know, the rest is history. So if Coach Tui doesn't call your parents, there's zero chance you end up... There's zero chance that I come to Colorado. I was all set on UCLA. Do you remember remember anything about your official visit out to to Colorado? Yeah, I came here with... uh, we uh, used to call him because all my friends were heading to USC. Antoine Wood, uh, he played for Dallas Cowboys right now. We were all friends. We, we knew each other in LA. Uh, Big Marcus, we knew each, uh, each other in LA. So Big Mark signed to USC. Uh, Antoine Wood signed to USC. I also was supposed to go to USC, but I was like, nah, I already made a commitment to UCLA, so I didn't want to flip it to USC. And uh, when I came here, I came with Big Mac because he was like, oh, let's just go have fun in Colorado. What do we, do we have to do? So when I got here, he said, I see you actually serious of considering Colorado. I was like, yeah, why? Well, it's like, no, man, you're supposed to be with us at USC or UCLA. We, we down the street, man. We never was like, why would you? I was like, yeah, uh, I just got to make what is right for me, man. So I just went ahead and waited and, I told uh, John Embry at the time, like, yeah, just send me the paperwork. I will sign them. And they did. I uh, signed them. So, but I remember I came here and met Coach Hagen, Coach Embry, 
we went to Pastor J restaurant. Yeah, I remember everything about my visit. So it was pretty cool. So you come in, and like you mentioned, you were a defensive lineman uh, in high school. When does moving to the other side of the line become a discussion with you and, and Coach Embry and the rest of the staff? Uh, Coach Embry actually didn't want me to switch to O-line. We had so many injuries that year on the O-line. I remember even Bakhtiari had a knee injury at the time. That was swelling all the time. Uh, Ryan Danowitz had a back injury. Jack Harris had, like, a, I believe it was either ACL or, like, he broke his foot or something like that. Those are all the O-line guys. And Alex Lewis was playing left guard. Now we needed a tackle. So I used to, I remember when we were playing, I played DNN uh, O-line, I believe, in a couple games where I would run off the field. Like, I would have my number 90 jersey where I go and play DN and I would run off the field and they had this 77 jersey that they would do. It was like button-up jersey and then they would just put it on me and I would go back in there to play as an O-line. Man, my conditioning used to be impeccable because I had to run. I had to run in and out, in and out, in and out every time. Man, I have never ran so much like that before. It was crazy. But that's how I actually did. And then finally, when Coach Mike came in, Coach Bernardi wanted to just go ahead and not let me go back to the end and keep me as a tackle. So, yeah, I only played like two and a half years like that as an offensive lineman. I remember talking to you when you were making that transition and you said one of the toughest things about being an offensive lineman is that sometimes you can't initiate the contact. And that I, was, yeah. yeah, I remember talking about that, yeah. What, uh, and it's tough enough for somebody that's played offensive lineman, been an offensive lineman all through high school to come in and get used to it at college, much less for somebody that had never played the position how tough was that transition when you were a full time? You began to be a full time offensive lineman. Is that something that you always kind of had faith that it would come together, or is it something that you questioned at some point as you're trying to develop? Uh, let's put it this way: I'm a go getter. You want something, you go, you work hard for it, you will get it. When I get, uh, like, when I see that they are trying to play me more, because I remember even for my first game starting as an O-lineman, it wasn't supposed to happen. I was supposed to just keep playing both ways, right? And then the sh- the, I got shocked when against Washington State in Pullman, Coach Marshall tell me in the bus, Stefan, you're starting today as an O-lineman. I'm like, wait, what? I'm not ready. Where's the playbook? I, I, I don't even know the playbook, man. I usually just come here to have. You know, he was like, no, nah, today you're actually starting full offensive line. I'm, I don't even know how to pass pro because I will go there and run the ball. And when they do pass pro, I will get out. So that, you know, Ryan Danovis can go ahead and pass pro. So I wasn't ready to be, you know, full-time O-lineman. But then uh, one thing I learned, the hard, it was very hard as a transition. Why? Patience. As an offensive lineman, they are very patient. They like I call it like a control beast. You know what I mean? Where you are not way too aggressive. Like you are aggressive with your hands, but you don't go initiated because once you go to try to hit the GN, you're giving him a three-way go. You want to give him every single time only a two-way go, right? Either he bull rush you or he try to beat you outside. You don't ever want him to beat you inside. 
those are something that is until like you know like you kind of get mature as an offensive lineman that you understand it and even for people that have been playing offensive linemen for years since high school even for them it's still hard to grab that concept right because sometimes you just want to go ahead and annihilate somebody you know but me coming from a defensive end perspective i was always trying to hit i love hitting so i was always trying to go out there and hit somebody but then when i will go and i get them yeah i will knock them on the ground but when i miss it's ugly to watch right because i'm bringing every single thing every single ounce of power that I have in my body to make that one hit. And when you miss it, it's a sack right away, you know? So that is how to learn how to be controlled and everything. Even from time to time, it will still jump out of me when the DN is like way too smooth. And I, especially when I hit smooth DN, I hit like violent DN because I know I can handle it, right? Because I know he thinks he can overpower me. I love it. But when you have someone, like, let's say Van Miller, people that are smooth in their thing, then it becomes harder because they are flexible. They, they know how to maneuver their body. It's very hard to block people like that. As an offensive lineman, you guys sometimes have a thankless job. You could go out there and pancake 10 guys, and if you're clearing yeah. lanes, the running back, the, the quarterback, they're going to get the glory. But like you said, if you make a mistake as an offensive lineman, then everybody points to you in that instance. How tough is that just – knowing that your mistakes are kind of are kind of nitpicked, yet if you do a great job, sometimes that goes unnoticed. Yeah, I mean, uh, as far as that part, that's why I didn't want to go to freaking all I men in the first place. They don't get no glory, you know? It's like, let's say I give up a sack in a game. Like, I pancake 99 people, and on my 100 one, I miss it, and I give a sack everybody in the country is going to know about it. That, hey, did you see that offensive lineman that missed and that almost got the quarterback kill? You know, like everybody will be talking about it. But when you go ahead and you get like 100 pancakes, nobody cares. Like nobody even noticed, right? They would notice offensive linemen most of the time as a unit. Only like few of them, like, you know, right now, David Bakhtiari, Ronnie Stanley, uh, uh, Tyron Smith, you know, uh, Trent, Trent Richardson, you know, only a few people like that, you you will get noticed as individual people because they are so good at what they do. You know what I mean? So uh, it always was frustrating for me. Sometimes I was like, man, why did I move to offensive linemen, man? Nobody knows what I'm doing here. But that is just the nature of things. There are some people that just walk together as a chemistry, right? Because if I give a sack, then they will say the O line suck. So the O line is one of the probably the only position on the field that has to walk together across the line as a union. Like all our combination, I cannot go right when you're going left unless it's a scheme. You know what I mean? We either have to go to the like coach was like, hey, when you guys don't know, everybody go to the same direction. <laughs> you know, because if you guys are going to the same direction, you would just be like, hey, it's a scheme. If a mistake happens, it's a scheme. But when someone goes his own way and the line is divided, that is a recipe to get the quarterback here. And then there's a problem. They will just go ahead and say the old line sucks. So is it fair? No, but it's right. It's just the way the position is. 
Do you remember, you mentioned, shared the story of your first start, you're kind of panicking a little bit. When did it start to get easy for you or make you, when did you start to go out there and really start to feel comfortable? Was there kind of a time period in your college career when, when that started to set in? And as an online player? Yeah. Uh, actually, my first few games in college, I was always nervous before every game. Even in NFL, I was still nervous, but like, in college because I didn't trust that technique, right? I didn't trust because for me, I was coming from a defensive end position. So I didn't really trust that I could pass pro. Run block, I didn't have a problem with it because even when I miss, I will hit, you know? I will hit, somebody's going to get hit, you know? Whether I miss the guy or I go hit the wrong guy, my coach was like, hey, we love your aggressiveness. If you are going to make a mistake, make it full speed. You know, so I used to just go ahead and try to take somebody's head out. But it sucked when you meet. But, like, I didn't feel comfortable to probably my senior year. But fortunately, because I was, I was like, oh, I can actually play O-lineman now. I was so ready for my senior year to play right tackle. But, you know, every time you think you're ready, something else shows up. Because as soon as I'm thinking, oh, I'm a dominant as a right tackle, guess what? Jeremy Irwin. I won't forget it, Jeremy. Jeremy Irwin blows his ACL. I have never took, Coach Bernard is my witness, I have never took even one rep as a left tackle. Because I was barely learning how to play right. They tell me, Stefan, you are the most athletic O-line that we have right now. You need to go play left. I was like, wait, what? Like, I have never played left. They are like, you need to go play left right now. This happened in the middle of the game against Oregon when they have like DeForest Buckner and Eric Armstead. And man, after I started blocking them, because that day they didn't get no sack on me. And I was like, huh, I think I might play, I might play this position, you know, because I was, why? Because they have power. If they were like coming, like I have problem against skinny DN, like, you know, that they're not too tall. That was always my problem. But when I meet people who have strength, that is when I love it because I know they will try to power me and I, I know I have strength, you know. What I don't trust is technique on how to block small guys. But if you come in with, like, power and everything, that I can handle. I just can't handle someone that is very smooth and, like, you know, crafty and things like that. You ended your career with the Buffs with the second longest streak of starts on the team at 37 games, started a total of 42 games in college. Looking back, what, what are your favorite memories of your, your time in Boulder? Uh, I, have, I have a lot of memory. I have my family, the minor, you know, Kelsey minor, Nelson minor, Lori minor. I had my family in California with Kayla and Sandra. So it was a lot of memory because we used to go to places. And uh, I'd see you in terms of college. Uh, I like all my coaches, you know. I didn't have any issue with any coaches because till today, all my coaches are winning. There's no coach that I ever had to tell me, Stefan, you need to work hard. That had never happened because I already knew what I'm supposed to do, when I'm supposed to do it, you know, and everything. And it was just a great environment, you know. I never had to face uh, really anything bad, really. So 
for me, everything was good. I, I just wish I had more fun. Why am I saying that? Is because I was so focused on. Uh, I need to lead by example. You know what I mean. I need to work hard. All my teammates, when they would see me work hard, they will work hard. So at the time, I remember I refused one year, especially my junior year, the junior year that I didn't want to be a captain, right? Because I was like, oh, what am I going to tell people? I don't really know how to talk to people. You know, I just know how to go there and do my job and work hard. You know, so everything I see you from me was good. I did. I don't regret anything about see you. What are your favorite spots to eat in Boulder? Ooh, I had like two, uh, two spots. Cause at first it was at the broker with Terry, because Terry was the man. He used to call me Blue. You know, they everybody called him Blue. So I, 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 I like when he had the Wings restaurant downtown the hotel. It was the best spot. And then there's like two other spots. Like, uh, have you ever been to uh, the Buff? Yes, for breakfast, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I love the buff. I love uh, half-ass. And there's this best place that makes the best barbecue to me in town so far that I've seen. Unless someone brings something else new, it was uh, most barbecue. That, to me, oof, man. And I was living right next to it, so I would always go there and get some chicken wings and things like that because I didn't really eat meat like that. But chicken wings was my favorite there, yeah. It's kind of random. I remember when you came back from visiting your family in Cameroon, you were mentioning that you don't you hate the chicken in the United States because it it's not anywhere near what it is back home. Did you ever warm up to the to the chicken in the United States? Yeah, I mean, I had no choice. When, I, when you live here for like six, seven years without ever seeing your parents, without eating anything, not even once from back home, you have no choice but to adapt, right? So I had to uh, adapt. That's why I say that most barbecue was my favorite because they made it in a way that it has some type of flavor, you know? It has some good flavors on it that even Africans will say, yeah, this is some good chicken, you know. But my point of talking about the chicken flavor was the fact that uh, most of our chicken growing, I never heard of organic chicken. Everything is organic. So there's no such thing as organic chicken. They don't know other way besides it being organic. Chicken, you know, just grow around you know, the houses, and they are let free out there, you know, like what they call free cage or what. That is how chicken grow back home. So we don't have, like, slurring, like, chicken houses where we kill it and then put it on the market. You know, you come, you get your chicken fresh. That means you, you see one in the, you know, walking around, you say, oh, yeah, I want that one, and then they catch it for you and kill it and take all the feather out, and then you're on our way home to cook it. That is how I grew up eating so to me that one had a better flavor than you know the one that they pump in my opinion a lot of uh, hormones into like what they eat and everything to me it doesn't taste the same at the end of the 2015 season did you sense something special might be brewing with kind of the leadership on the team and did you take some pride in what they were able to accomplish in in 2016 yeah of course because i had everything to do with it I freaking, I was the one, like, the person that I liked a lot was uh, Philip Lindsay and Chidobe Awuzi because we were first captain on my senior year together. 
And you can ask him, when I would talk, no one else would talk in the room. Why? Because I was trying, like I said, lead by example. I used to offer my number together. Hey, you ever find yourself drunk at night or anything like that? You cannot drop. Just give me a call. I will come pick you up. So you, if you see, we started having a lowest amount of crime when I was there my senior year. After I left, it spiked up a little bit, right? Because I, I was, I remember being playing the NFL and then after the game like that, and I would hear that such and such guy in trouble, you know, for doing this or doing that. I'm like, man, how did that ever happen? I, we were living together, you know? So it's like, I was very happy to see that, you know, what we started growing with Coach Mike was actually uh, paying dividend. You know what I mean? So everything started coming together and everything. And I, I was happy, like, man, you, you have no idea of, how many buff fans are there? I had people calling me from Boston that I have never heard of. So they're like, man, you guys did a great job, man. This year we're number eight in the country, you know? So I was, like, I was just like, yeah, man, good job. But I didn't even know who they are, you know? They're like, this is the buff club from Boston, you know? Like, <laughs> okay, so yeah, very happy, man. You talked about playing in the NFL. Uh, after CU, you played in the East-West Shrine game. You were invited to the NFL Combine. What was that whole experience like uh, preparing to be a professional football player? Oh, oof. It was great, man. I have never... Remember when we talked about culture at the beginning? It was really good because through, like, that whole process, I have I discovered, like, Indianapolis. I discovered... Tampa in Florida, you know, those are the places I have never been before. So I had to put it in my repertoire, you know, be like, hey, I've seen these places. So the whole experience itself was really good. But I don't think people have any idea of what happened, like the, you know, the combine and everything, the questioning, the waking up at like 2 a.m., 3 a.m. to do the P test and then in the morning having to go right away and do drills after you didn't sleep very well. You know what I mean? So it, it was definitely uh, interesting. You know, it was interesting. It was good. It gave me a lot of opportunity. I'm always thankful, right? You always got to be thankful for everything God helped you accomplish. So I was very thankful not only for the NFL process, but also to the fact that even though I blew my knee, I got to experience what it is like to be a professional, you know? So those are the things, memories that no one can ever take from you. Yes, I didn't get that kind of money, but I got the exposure, the, the, you know, the experience and everything like that. So those are things that get stuck with you forever. What made you choose to sign with the Baltimore Ravens after, after the draft that year? It's actually funny, right? Uh, I was supposed to sign with either the Chief, with Eric Bieniemy, or the Chicago Bear. But for the position that I played, there was a coach called Juan Castillo, or there's a coach called Juan Castillo. And I talked with my agent and at the time. We believed he was the best in the game to kind of help me enhance my game forward. Because I had, like, the necessary violence, but it wasn't controlled. You know what I mean? Yeah, yes, uh, Coach Bernardi, as my college O-lineman, did the best he could with me, right? But you always have to keep learning. So uh, we felt like the next step for me was to learn from, like, Coach Juan Castillo. And that's why I took less money, right? Because people don't even know. I was going to get, like, $100,000 from uh, the Chicago Bay, or, like, $50,000 from 
the chief. I turned all of it down to go take like 12,000 from the Baltimore Ravens. You know what I mean? Because at the time we believed that was the best thing that was. My, I remember my agent told me, and which is good, you know, Kevin Robinson with a capital sport and the Jack Mills here in Boulder. I remember he told me, do you want to eat the whole bread tomorrow or do you, like he said something like, do you want to eat the crumbs right now and eat the whole bread tomorrow or do you want to eat the whole bread right now and eat, and eat crumbs later? I was like, man, I'll already eat like crumbs right now and eat the whole bread later. And he said, then, as your agent, I would love for you to take the hundred thousand or the fifty thousand because then I make money. But the thing is, I choose what is best for player. I think your technique is not where you need to be. You need to meet with someone that will have the patience of teaching you the proper technique so you became you can become dominant. It was going great with the boss. Until I blew my knee, everything that they told me will happen with the John Harbour and everything, it was going great. Like, you know, I was on my point to start with the, the Baltimore event. Unfortunately, the year when they told me, okay, Stefan, right now you're competing for the starting position. It's either you or I remember there were three of me, James Wesley, and uh, the, I thought, damn, I forgot his name. And he was like... You, we think you are going to be ahead. So there's now it's up to you to prove us that we are wrong. I started work, man. I walked my butt off that song. I was so ready. And then when we go against the Washington Redskins, I blow my knee. And everything went south from there. Just like that in one chance. The thing is, I blew my knee and my father passed away. So instead of just focusing on even like that, the type of injury that I had, they told me that chances for me to ever play again they, they were very slim. But it was okay. Life hits you sometime in a way where you don't expect. So I just took it the way it was and had to focus more on burying my dad and everything. So even when I got, I got back, seeing the doctor. The doctor told me that everything should be fine, but every time when I would try to do something, my knee would just start swelling, you know what I mean? So even when I go to Canada to test the knee out, because I knew that, that in Canada, like the competition, it's good competition, but it's not fair. So I thought by testing it, I would kind of see where I would be to get back into the NFL. But I saw that, yeah, it, it still wasn't every game that I played there in Canada, my knee was swelling like crazy. So I just decided to go ahead and focus on something else. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear about your father. Uh, did your mother join you in the United States after that, or is that a more recent Yeah, my mom just came here just past February. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, you know, kind of going back to the injury, you mentioned that life sometimes hits you when you don't expect it. Uh, how, how do you make that decision that, you know, it's just not going to happen with the, the knee the way it is? And, and how do you come to grips with, uh, you know, having to, to hang up the, the, the helmet and the cleats? When uh, your agent talks to every team and they tell, and they tell him, like, hmm, that knee injury. Hmm, that knee. So no GM even wanted to give me a workout. When before that, everybody was like, hey, you know, you don't have to play with the ribbon. You can come play with her. And then he went from that to the, oh, we are not quite sure about your knee, you know. And it looked like they had something that said that my knee won't 
coming back anytime soon. So it well, was just what it was. And I went to Canada. I, if the virus didn't come, I probably wouldn't have grasped that it's time for me to move on. Right? Because when the virus hit, I was like, well, this is it. You know, I, I don't want to go back there. And, you know, so I just want to go ahead. And I will, I love Canada. It was great. I want to go there to visit and, you know, but as far as for football, I was like, I didn't really have my head in it anymore. And when you don't have any more your head in some things, maybe time to look for something else. So I started selling cars first as a part-time, you know. I was like, oh, I'm just going to sell a couple of cars. And then I started, like, oh, I might actually be good in sell. And then now I'm like, let me take a bigger step. I will move to Dallas and get into Solar, put my podcast into play, find a way to promote it and be on my own now, start my own thing. Because I think it's better for me to do it now. And this is, it didn't all happen in one day, right? It's a hard, I didn't know how hard it is when you didn't make the million dollar in the NFL, how hard it is of a transition to go from like, okay, football is over to like, what am I going to do? Even now, I'm still trying to figure everything out, right? Like, I didn't have any education of what happened after sport because I've been playing sport since I was a kid because I started first with soccer, then, uh, how do you call it, handball, then basketball, then obviously football in America, football and basketball, then football in college, then football as a pro. So I have never had a year where I didn't play football in my life. Uh, what am I saying? Where I didn't play any sport in general in my life. So the transition has been really, really tough. Do you think you'll want to tune into football this fall if it's played? Or will that be tough as you kind of get used to this transition period? Uh, for me, sometimes I look at some of my friends that were like, even when I got with the Ravens, some of them that, were behind me and I was ahead of them in the depth chart and I was about to start. Now I see them starting and making millions of dollars. I'm like, man, like I was ahead of these guys. Like what happened? You know what I mean? But it's, it's just what it is, right? You can't sit back and cry about oh, what could have been because it's not bringing me anything. So I just decided to go ahead, put my head down and, find my own way now. So maybe it could be a blessing in this guy that I've not seen so far, you know. But as far as tuning into football, of course I tune into football all the time because I'm all, I am also coach like offensive linemen to some kids, you know what I mean? I try to show them like the NFL technique work that, you know, I, I got to learn and everything like that. So I'm always available for any kid out there that want me to train him and everything like that. So I do that and I watch position because I need to watch it to show him, like, this is what I'm trying to teach you and everything. And there's one thing weird about football, right? When you play a position, I didn't know that. When you play a position, when you watch a football game, you actually just tend to watch that position. You don't watch the game like the normal person, right? The normal person don't watch the whole like, pass and everything. I don't look at passing. I look at like, oh, how is this offensive lineman doing? Like, how is he doing? You know what I mean? So it's interesting. So, of course, I will watch. You had to go through a coaching transition during your time in Boulder. Obviously, the guys that are up there playing for the bus right now were put in a really tough spot with – 
Mike McIntyre getting fired, then Mel Tucker leaving after a little more than a year. Carl Durrell comes in, and because of COVID-19, he can't even get in front of the players. It sounds like that might happen soon, hopefully, for those guys. But uh, how tough is that for those current players to kind of be through the, the situation they've been through the last year, a few years, again, knowing that, that you had gone through that coaching transition up there? Yeah, people don't know that is really, really tough, especially let's say you were a starter. All of a sudden, you think you have this uh, relationship with the coach and everything. You know, okay, as long as I keep doing this or whatever, my position is secure or anything like that. When a new coach comes in, you don't know what is going to happen. Coach might have a new favorite. You might think that this guy is actually better and things like that. So a lot, a lot of things go into players' mind as far as what are they going to lose? What is going to happen? What is the new coach going to be like? Is he going to want to run morning practices or afternoon practices? You know what I mean? So a lot of things just go through your head because you don't know how to do it or how to handle it. Yeah, well... Obviously, like you said, you're, you're moving out to the Dallas area. You started up a podcast. What, what are kind of your goals going forward in life? Are you still kind of trying to figure out what the, the plan is here? Uh, my goal will be like for my podcast to hit one day between the top five podcasts, more or top five most listened to podcasts in the country or maybe the world or anything like that. And travel you see how those people have those youtube channel where they travel across the world and see me like that is my actual goal because i love culture so much i just wanted to take up to where it will become more like a like a tv channel like someday you know i have the accent for it that i want to go out there and i actually go culture from culture to culture that is my dream like that is really like my dream thing where I go from culture to culture, experience what they talk, uh, what their culture is about, like ask for like their customs and things like that, while that being filmed and posted on whatever, like whether it's TV or YouTube, people are watching. And also, right now I'm trying to also get in solar. So I, I wanted to take up really so I can, you know, work on my own, you know, be my own man and have the freedom to really do what I want to do change life, you know, start maybe through this because my initial goal of trying to play in NFL was always to build my offense. I always, that is like all, always my biggest dream. It didn't happen the way I thought it was going to happen so I can get the money to build it. So now I just got to find a way to make other aspects of my life work so I can still go ahead and do what I want to do. Great stuff, Stefan. Uh, I really enjoyed catching up with you. I know, uh, CU fans out there are all rooting for you in life, and, and it was great covering your career up in Boulder, and uh, best wishes with everything going forward. Thank you, man. Thank you. Please just, you know, help me promote a little yes. bit of my podcast. I know you have a uh, podcast as well, and you probably I, I know that you probably understand that it's tough to get something started because you also had to go through that whole process of, getting something started today you have the image and everything like that so please just you know help a brother out absolutely the the cultural cultural awareness podcast correct yep cultural right. awareness we talk about everything culture custom what is accepted in one society might not be accepted in another one so yeah great stuff well yeah we'll get the word out as best we can and again best of luck with everything going forward thank you thank you very much